0: Hello and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self supporting by visiting Sobercast.com. Look for the donate link and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Daryl. I'm an alcoholic. It is truly by the grace of a loving God I found here in Alcoholics Anonymous my wonderful and corrective and sweet and merciless sponsor uh, the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous and consistent participation in my home group I've been sober since September 17th of 1998 and for that I'm truly grateful um, you know I, I looked on the program I looked on my card and they spelt my name wrong and but I'm over that now um <laughs> But, uh, but I want to thank the committee for asking us to come. It's always a pleasure to come up and see you all, uh, all you folks from the Foxhall group. It's kind of a, a way to be a, a home away from home because our group is not much different than yours. We still have all the same uh, mental twists <laughs> and uh, the same people, just different faces. And, uh, you know, if I, if I say stuff funny, I hope, you know, I find funny, I hope you laugh. Because I find it funny. If you, if I find it sad, I hope you find it sad. If I find it meaningful, I hope you find it meaningful. But if I act like an idiot, don't blame me. Blame the committee. <laughs> so, um, you know, what it was like, uh, what happened, what it's like now. Um, you know, I also I want to thank my home group homies for coming up here and supporting us. It's always always a pleasure to travel in packs. and makes the trip a lot of fun. And we've had a lot of fun so far. So... Uh, Where do I begin? I don't know where to begin, really, other than just, you know, all I really have to share with you is my my experience, strength, and hope. I don't have any wonderful words of wisdom other than, you know, man, I drank. And I drank from the moment I I started. And there was never this period of social drinking. I mean, I don't, you know, when I read in the big book, and I actually saw it for the first time, where it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol, why else would you drink? (laughs) I don't get that. I mean, I don't understand. I mean, why, what, what's the purpose of drinking socially? Oh, I, I'm feeling a little bit. i got to stop. And it's like, no, I want some more. I, I want to feel beyond this. And My wife describes it as missing the exit, you know, right? When it's feeling good, it's like you're supposed to get off here. You just, you know, and I get that. I just blaze right on by that exit, man. I'm just going down the freeway at 95. And uh, from the moment I started drinking, that's the way it was for me. I mean, it was about getting hammered. It was never about just being okay, um, and that uh, that began began a long process that many of us, many of us, if not all of us, I hope, have experienced. And you know, I didn't I didn't experience it in a way a lot of people experience it. Um, at least the people I know uh, didn't experience it that way. I didn't experience it where there was a lot of success with drinking. I mean, there was always problems. <laughs> Every time I turned around, there was a problem. Either I was going to jail. Uh, I was getting in trouble by my parents, um, I lost my license, or I was getting in a fight, or I was getting kicked out of somewhere, or I woke up with somebody I didn't know I went to bed with. I mean, that was just the way it was. That was my alcoholism. And that was that way throughout. It was never, never a nice smooth ride. And, um, you know, I'm in a vision for you, it talks about, you know, drinking meant companionship, conviviality, you know, wonderful imagination, you know, a joyous intimacy with friends. I don't know, man. The guys I hung out with, we liked to fight. There was really no intimacy. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was about going out and getting in trouble, and that was what we did. And, you know, I, was, uh, I went to treatment the first time when I was 16 years old, you know. And, and um, you know, I, my mom was a recovering alcoholic. I grew up with her. You know, she was the first woman president of the Kansas Alcoholism Association. She was very tied in to recovery from the time I was a little kid on. I mean, I was going to AA I meetings mean, at six years old. But when I was 16, I mean, I was definitely well into the depths of alcoholism, and she knew that. Um, I'm from a long line of alcoholics. I mean, my dad was this raving alcoholic. He died at 47. My grandfather on my dad's side was a raging alcoholic. He died choking on his puke at 55 in a little camper trailer in somebody's backyard because that's where he lived. He was known as the town drunk, that's my heritage. And uh, my uh, grandfather on my mother's side, he died at 50 of a heart attack from drinking. You know, he was a bad drunk. So those, that's the lineage of my family. So I, I come by it honestly. I didn't, you know, just acquire it one day. Um, it was bread. <laughs> um, so, you know, when a 16-year-old I went to treatment, you know, I really didn't think I had too many problems other than just if everybody would just leave me alone, I'd be all right. You know, if you'd really recognize my true potential, I'd be fine. Uh, that kind of mentality, you know, that sense of entitlement. Um, and uh, so I went through treatment, and you know, I got in 29 days, and I got kicked out for fraternizing. I'm 16. What else do you do? You know? Come on. Um, so I got kicked out and went back home, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to go back to my friends, and I'm going to be the guy that's a designated driver. I won't drink. I won't do drugs. I won't do anything. I'll just designate, drive all my friends around and be helpful. And that lasted, that lasted about 36 hours, and, and I was right back into it. And you know, I ran into some problems later on in life, and, and uh, my mother and father divorced when I was a year old, so I really didn't know my real dad that much, uh, and he only lived 20 miles away. I'd be lucky if I saw him once a year. But my stepfather came in, and, and uh, my stepfather and my mother started a relationship on a, on a really good note. He was in rehab, and she was a counselor, and I assure you that never happens in Nebraska. Um, but anyway, you know, he was my stepdad, and, we, and, and, and I, there was a long time where I just would not accept him and so i had to leave i had to leave larned kansas and that's where i'm from but by by the way if anybody knows anything about larned kansas there's a state hospital there um if i wouldn't have told you that you probably wouldn't have known it was there but i just want to assure you that i'm from the town not the hospital in case you (laughs) wanted to know but uh, but i had to leave there and and i moved to wichita with my uncle when i was uh, 16 years old and i went and stayed with him and he opened his home up to me him, him and his wife and his three daughters and you know, and it was just the same stuff over and over again, you know, it was just this constant thing. And you know, I'd go to I'd go to first period, which is wood, so I could make myself a new pipe, and then I'd leave for the rest of the day and then come back at PE so I could finish off the day with some good exercise and get everything I put in my body out by the end of the day. Um, just so you'll know, I will tell you that um, I, I do I did a lot of other things besides alcohol. But I promise you this, everything I did I did alcoholically. No doubt about it. I mean I took everything to that end. But uh, anyway, they did an intervention on me, and uh, it was at, actually that's when I went to treatment the first time. And then I got out, went back to Larned, and you know I was I lived in my brother's basement because my mom actually got a job at the treatment center I went to. Dumb the luck, you know, and so she moves to Norton, and I stay in in Larned, and I move into my brother's basement. Now, my brother at the time he was uh, he was a chemi- he was a chemical distributions manager, and in central Kansas, that's a that's a <laughs> prestigious position self-employment no taxes it's awesome and so I started my internship if you will into chemical distribution management and I moved into his basement and had dirt floor dirt walls and uh, I just threw a big old throw rug on the floor and you know when water came in it just soaked into the dirt floor it was all good Uh, I had a Van Halen poster on the wall I just a couple nails and you know stuck it right in the wall and I was home I had a extension cord run through the floor for power and that was my paradise. My door was my own door. It's called the storm doors that go outside of your house and that's how I got into my room. <laughs> but uh, I was only there for a short period of time and I found myself in legal trouble and, and I got in a fight with the guy and I hurt him really bad and, and uh, went to the Pawnee County Jail for the first time and uh, they, uh, they gave me an opportunity um, and that was either you face, you know, juvenile prosecution or you move with your parents. And I like to think of myself, as a little bit of common sense, so I boogied. That was my first, you know, second geographical change. So by the time I was 17, I'd already had two geographical switches, you know, thinking it was going to be different somewhere else, you know, and it just never was. Everywhere you go, there you are. And I found pretty quick, I found the same people, just different faces there and doing the same things. And two years later... Uh, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer and you know I, I guess for me if I really ever wanted to look back and notice where it really went from just having a really good time and I mean I liked having a really good time to where it was necessary for me to drink every day it was right after he passed away my senior year and um, uh, right before that, all that happened we were out partying one night. We ran out of beer and we thought, you know, we need to find some beer. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. So, what? you know, where is there always beer? It's the country club. You know, they always got beer at the country club. So we broke into the country club. Don't do that. Um, The judges go there. The district attorney goes there. You know, everybody goes there that is, you know, all the pertinent people in town. But we broke in and we stole five cases of beer and $3,000, which they never recovered because it was illegal gambling money. And, um, yeah, I found that out much later. I actually got a little bit of bittersweet uh, justice out of that deal. So I, was, I was wondering, always, they never did put that on the police report. We always kind of wondered about that. And then, lo and behold, ten years later, they got popped. And, but, uh, anyway, stole a set of golf clubs. And, you know, in, in a small town of Norton Kansas, you've got like 3,200 people there. Three o'clock in the morning, you drive right down the main drag. There's nobody out that has any common sense except us so what are the police gonna do? they're gonna pull us over what are we doing out at three o'clock in the morning and sure enough five cases of beer and and the funny thing is they pull us over right in front of a liquor store i mean that makes it even that much worse now my mom's a counselor at valley hope in norton and they call her up at three o'clock in the morning she comes down there she's got curlers in her hair and she's driving a 1969 nova four-door red with a white top and that thing did not have a nice paint job on it i brushed painted it with red paint and she pulls up there and her face is as red as that car and in her nightgown curlers and i'm like oh this is not good uh they had the beer up on top of the car you know we were caught and we had a pretty good story until the one guy went in and told the truth <laughs> and so anyway i uh went through that whole process, and and right before I uh, got out of high school, uh, I got sentenced to 12 years in in prison, uh, suspended to uh, 10 days in jail, three years probation and restitution. Now, I attribute that to nothing more than my mom just being a good person in the community. You know, the judge took pity, and my alcoholism was in full-blown alcoholism, period. Um, so anyway I got off kind of easy on that I did my probation Um, not really I think the only reason I didn't go to prison is because my dad and the uh, district attorney used to cut firewood together and that's the only reason otherwise I'd have been in prison but I did get to go through scared straight for a day so when I could tell you I did time (laughs) 12 hours (laughs) KSIR in Hutchinson Kansas I went to prison for 12 hours but uh, so, you know, I got out of high school and I moved to Colorado and, and uh, moved in with a buddy of mine and, uh, you know, things just kept going and I got a job in construction that lasted a little while. I get fired from that. Ended up going on this little traveling sales job. This was awesome. We traveled all over the country. Everywhere there was military, you know, and it's a, it was a film company, you know, where you process film and they give away these little packages. If you've ever been in the military, they come to Omaha, I'm sure, all the time. I want to sell you magazines and whatnot. Well, that's the kind of deal it was, and uh, we went everywhere. And what a great job for a drunk, you know? You go somewhere for two weeks to a month, and man, you're out of there. The wreckage is left behind. You have no consequences. But pretty soon that caught up with me. We ended up up in Tacoma, Washington, and and uh, my aunt and uncle uh, lived up there. My uncle was a he was a registered nurse in a mental institution called Western State Hospital. And no, you know, none of you know where that is. That's where Ted Bundy was at before he got executed. Yeah, very prestigious place. Um, so my my uncle got me a job there as a mental health technician. Yeah, that was a good job. I folded towels. I uh, wrestled crazy people. Uh, and uh, you know, the first ward I was on with was, was the uh, schizophrenic or drug and, and alcohol induced schizophrenic ward. And so it's kind of interesting. I really identified with those folks. Yeah. That's funny actually, but you know in all due respect it's reality but I did I identified with those people and I did a good job there and when things got kind of rough and I couldn't afford to pay my bills I started doing chemical distribution again and then work started to become a problem. I was interrupted all the time couldn't do business and uh, so showing up to work became an issue and I got fired and uh then I, then I went to treatment because I ended up owning the wrong kind of people, the wrong kind of money. And, and i tell you what, I lived in an apartment with green shag carpet. I had one recliner, two end tables in my living room, and a lamp. I had a TV that got one channel, but I had a remote. <laughs> so I was living large, man. Um, I was living large. But I remember sitting in i remember sitting in there one morning and i was listening you know i had to have noise go all the time i mean i just could not stand to sit with silence and i was in there doing my marketing and research and my packaging and um for my distribution company um, and uh, i was listening to this this evangelist the guy's name is casey treat i don't know if you know who that guy is he's national he used to be national he's got bright red hair i mean this guy was fire red hair and And he said something that really just kind of caught me. And he said, you know, I cannot expect life to treat me. I have to treat it. And I stopped. For whatever reason, that's what I heard. I didn't hear anything else this guy was saying. And it was like I looked up in my apartment, and I'd been crawling around on the carpet many times looking for things that you shouldn't look for. My ex-girlfriend, who I just kicked out, had a cat. And if you know about cats in apartments and litter boxes, they scatter that stuff everywhere. So, I had green carpet, white kitty litter. Yeah, you've done that before, haven't you? It is horrible to snort that stuff, man. Let me tell you. It is a bad deal. Every once in a while though, I'd find something. Yeah. Leaves an everlasting scent of aroma in your nose, too. Man, I'm glad I'm not the only one who's done that. Woo! <laughs> but anyway, I looked up after he said that, and I just, you know, I thought to myself, this has got to stop. This is insane. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got tinfoil on my windows because I don't want people to see in. I've got little holes poked in so I can see who's coming. Um, it was just a pitiful, pitiful, pitiful existence. And uh, so I made that phone call to my mom, and, mm-hmm. and uh, she said, well, you can't come here. So, you know, I was only 19 at the time. You no, know, I was actually 21 at the time. She said, you can't come here. So that kind of lets you know the condition of, of where I was at with my family. You can't come here, but you can go here. Call these people and do this. And so I called these people. I got the arrangements made. I got my plane ticket. And I was living in Seattle again at the, the time. and And, uh, boy, at that point, I knew I was going to rehab again. And, and, you know, I learned from the first time that you can go to rehab drunk. (laughs) Because I didn't go drunk the first time. I went sober, and that sucked, to be honest with you. So, you know, I started drinking. That's what I knew how to do. People would bring money over to me they owe me, and the first thing I'd do is go to the liquor store and get booze. And I drank, and I don't know how I got here to where I was going. All I know is that somehow I got on that airplane in a blackout, somehow I got off that airplane in Kansas City in a blackout. I woke up in the bus station in Kansas City talking to some lady from Dallas, Texas, about her marital problems. (laughs) Like I had something to offer. I'm on my way to rehab. Cool, you want to go? I mean, it's just, that's the story of my life. But anyway, I got on that bus and, and went to rehab, and you know, and. And that was, in, uh, that was December 8th of 1988. And, uh, you know, I, I had hit a point. I'd hit a bottom. And I went through rehab, and, and I did everything they told me to do. You know, I read the big book and, and uh, went to all the meetings. And, I mean, I was, the, I was the model patient, you know. I can do treatment blindfolded, man. I'm telling you. I've been around that stuff for a long time. I can do it blindfolded. Um, but I got out, and, and, you know, nobody came to visit me over Christmas, and, and uh, I'm over that now, too. Um, but my brother my brother lived in Lawrence and, and uh, he came to pick me up and um, my brother was at the time he, he still had a little bit of hair um, he tried to part it on the top but it didn't work well but he kept trying uh, his hair was out to here he had a beard it was just ugh. It's, like, it's almost like one of those sticky beards you put on but you just put it on in patches um, and he showed up and I think his eyes were about this far open and he was stoned man but he came to pick me up, and, and I picked my cup up, and we drove from Boonville, Missouri, back to Lawrence, Kansas, and I went to go spend a couple of days there with him. And the whole trip back, I mean, I was just, I mean, I, my imagination had been fired, man. It was like I had all these possibilities in my life. Things were going to happen, you know, and, and he'd be sitting there listening. He wouldn't say much. Every once in a while he'd take a hit off his one-hitter, you know, and I'd, he'd look up and say, whoa. Cool. Right on. Right on. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I think his, his neurotransmitters, every time they disconnected, went, <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, they were so sticky. Um, but we got back to Lawrence. I spent a couple of days there, and then I flew back to Seattle, and I went back to that mental institution for uh, for work, and, and that lasted for a little longer, and then, uh, you know, I just got crazy. I mean, I got crazy, because, but I did do the, a few things right. They told me to go to a meeting as soon as I got there, and I went to a meeting, and, um, They told me to find a sponsor, so I did that. Her name was Lisa. (laughs) You've done that too, huh? Uh, Forty-five days sober, I met my first sponsor, Higher Power counselor. Uh, You name it; I mean, she was it, and uh, we proceeded to pretty much just drive each other nuts for about the next two years. But uh, you know, I I was—I was—we were bad in this thing about six months, and, and she ends up pregnant. So not only did I have a sponsor, a higher power, and a counselor, because she was going to school to be a counselor, so I thought that was kind of a good fit. My mom's a counselor. She's going to school to be a counselor. It's a God thing. (laughs) You know, perfect. Uh, She ends up pregnant, and uh, I'm like, okay, so we're going to have a baby. Um, About eight months into that pregnancy, I just could not stand to be around here, let alone the simple fact that really all I could think about was myself. You know, really that's all I could think about. Didn't have a sponsor. Went to lots and lots of meetings. But just really did not get grounded in Alcoholics Anonymous. It did not make that connection before all that happened. And about eight months, she was eight months pregnant, and I said, I mean, I've had enough of this woman. She's crazy. Well, she's eight months pregnant. Most women at eight months pregnant kind of are a little loony, but that's not their fault. Uh, the, it's the baby's fault. <laughs> I might pay for that by the end of this day. <laughs> but uh, But anyway, I I left her, and and we were apart for a little bit, and then she had my daughter, and and, uh, she is just an amazing kid, and uh, that was in 1989. Um, We got back together a few months after that, and um, again, things just didn't go all that well. We just didn't do that well. We're like water and dirt. You know, you put it together. There's no spiritual solution in either one of our lives. I went to therapy for about three years and thought that that was going to be my solution, Um, and that was, she got, she talked me into that. She told me, you need therapy. So I just started going to therapy and, um, that sounded like you were clapping. (laughs) God love these guys. I mean, the effort they put forth, I really appreciate what they do. so after leaving her, um, Softball became a really big part of my life, and, and uh, i, I got to backtrack a little bit. I was working in construction um, after I left that institution job, and I fell 26 feet off a building and landed on asphalt and kind of see what happened here. Uh, cracked my skull. I was in coma for eight days, and, and uh, I woke up. There was They didn't see any neurological issues. It was, you know, other than just my self-centeredness. Um, And they sent me home a few days after that with a little bottle of pills. And I was about three years sober at the time. And, and, you know, it says on there, take as needed for pain. You know, it's Percocet, you know. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, man, but I don't have a sponsor. I don't have a God in my life. I don't have anybody that I'm connected with to really be accountable to. I'm in pain all the time, you know. Unfortunately, it's not the physical pain that gets me. It's the head pain. You know, the problem centers in my mind. When I read that in the big book the first time, I really thought, that's not right, because this isn't a mind thing, this is a God thing. No, not really, because the problem is here, because I'm thinking about what's going on all the time, and I'm thinking about that problem. And I'm thinking, how am I going to solve that problem? And I obsess on that problem, and pretty soon the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. bigger. So how how do I quiet those loud voices? Take a few pills. It's all good. It's prescribed. Even though I had... Four months later, four doctors giving them to me. Um, they were all convinced I was in pain. I was a pretty good actor. Uh, but uh, that went on for about a year. Um, I got tired of sitting in my uh, my home all the time. and uh, I remember going out. I had a compound fracture on my clavicle, and I had a sling on, and my lawn needed mowed. And I'm high on Percocet, and I'm out there mowing my lawn with one hand. Um, what a sight that was. I'm sure my neighbors really... That dude's weird. Um, I'm sure there were some side effects I didn't know about hopping around or doing whatever we do. Haldol, Thorazine, you know, all that stuff does that stuff. I'm sure plenty of Percocet will do it too. But I finally ended up getting off of those. And that, tell, that, that thing there tells me there's, there's one thing that separates me from an addict and an alcoholic. When the things get crazy enough, I can put the drugs down. But by God, that alcohol, man, I cannot lose that. I hadn't drank yet but the thought was there you know and pretty soon I didn't have a girlfriend anymore I didn't have a fiance. my daughter was sparse in my life I'd go visit her I was paying child support I was doing all this stuff I started going to school went to school and did all that stuff and pretty soon I met my next sponsor and her name was Paula Um, she was about 12 minutes sober uh, playing right field and uh, so we we got together and and, uh, a few years after that um, I had a feeling that thing was going to go south, and again, I wasn't tied in, I didn't have the solution in my life. Um, So what do I know how to do? In and of myself, in and of my own devices, what I know how to do is to put something in me to get me out of here, because here is not really feeling very well. So I, you know, I went and bought a bottle of Riuniti Lambrusco, fine wine, bottle of uh, Seagram's VO, that's some good Canadian whiskey there. Uh, Or is that rum? I forget. It's good, though. Uh, And I bought a little gram of of marijuana, and I proceeded to sit down in my house and just get tore up. Now, there was a guy out there that that actually tried to sponsor me many times, and uh, his name was Randy, and and, uh, I'll never forget Randy. He was always a good man to me and, and always tried to give me a solution, and I just never could hear it. He always used to tell me to go home and read The Third Step for 30 days. It's like I read it for thirty days, but it just wasn't coming in. I mean, it just was not absorbing into my brain. Um, you know, the whole part about you know uh, when when we make our will conform with God's will, we begin to use it rightly. I mean, that just wasn't sinking in. But uh, I called Randy up on the phone. I said, "I'm I'm I'm, I'm drunk. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, that was a response I got. I'm like, really? This this is the kind of pity I get. This is the kind of." You know, comfort I get. I'm in trouble here. He says, no, you were in trouble before you took your first drink. It's past that. And uh, so, you know, at that point in time, I said, screw it, man. I'm just going to go on to the bitter end. And, and I had scored a pretty good job. I was working for a, a pretty large corporation out in Seattle. And um, I was designer and an estimator. And um, at that, that, actually, at that point in time, I was actually lead of a, a crew out there of estimating design. And, and uh things kind of were starting to go south. You know, my drinking started to become an issue. Um, I was doing things in my office that I shouldn't have been doing uh, during and after work hours, which I'd never done before. I'd always done that stuff before and after, but never during. And uh, that job, all of a sudden, that company didn't recognize my true potential either. So, you know, I'm going to go find a new job. Um, And I did. I found another job working for another company. And and uh, I was in charge, actually, of a pretty, pretty nice large division of, of uh, uh, project management that I had to go out and survey all these different grocery stores and do all this independent working. Now, independent working for somebody who has devoted to their career in working, not drinking, um, that works well. But my career in drinking is what I was devoted to at that point in time. I had mean, gone off. So for the next six months, I mean, I just completely destroyed all the faith that they had in me, and and pretty soon, you know, they came to me and said, you know, you got to go. You know, as of December thirty-first of this year, which was in about three weeks, you no longer have a job here, so you need to find something else to do. And good luck. And uh, at that point in time, I just said, screw it. If I can't do it legally, I'll do it illegally. And uh, I proceeded to just completely and utterly destroy my life and that I had uh, that AA pretty much just trying to do it through osmosis had given me but I didn't see it that way these were achievements that I had done you know these were my achievements not Alcoholics Anonymous not the things that you guys were trying to give me and uh, just by the sheer example the people there were doing for me Um, two years later I was uh, sleeping on the floor of a an apartment um, of somebody that I'd met in a bar I didn't have anywhere else to go Um, I hadn't seen my daughter in quite a while things weren't good uh, she pretty much got tired of all the traffic all the craziness going on and she said you got to go and I really had nowhere else to go so i just threw all my stuff in my little uh, 1992 ford ranger pickup that was uh, suffering starting to suffer from the disease of alcoholism and i you know i just kind of floundered around you know i'd sleep on the streets here i'd you know sleep in my truck there i'd go find a park to sleep in here i'd go up to seattle and hang out with the street people up there and you know, I mean, panhandling is actually a pretty good business. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I, I could make a couple of hundred bucks a day. And uh, when you got a guy who's jonesing for a drink, man, that, that can last you a few days. Uh, and, and whatever else I could find to put in me. Um, I remember uh, when I had that corporate job in Seattle, there was a restaurant I used to go to there. It's called Cutters. It's right off, of, right off Pike Place Market. And uh, I used to sit in that restaurant. There's a park there where all the drunks and the dope hang hanging out at and i used to look at myself and think man i'm glad i didn't go that far down really glad until the day i was sitting in that park looking on the other side of the glass going how did i get there here from there because i used to look out here and think man i'm glad i didn't get that far down and then pretty soon i was there you know and that was that was just, that was kind of an eye-opening experience but on the other hand it was it was just so much shame and guilt wrapped up in the fact that i would pretty much abandoned my daughter um, I pretty much abandoned my career. I would left everything that ever meant anything to me, um, and this is where I was at. I finally got to a place again where I owed the wrong kind of people the wrong kind of money and uh, called my mom again and uh, said, man, I'm in bad shape. If I don't get out of here, I'm going to die, and she knew. I mean, she knew from the sound of my voice, and, and I was serious. I knew that was where I was headed. I was down to about, about 160 pounds at that point in time, and when I graduated high school, I was 205 pounds. Um, so you can tell right there. I mean, my disease was taking over, and the physical aspect of it was going to start, going to start hampering everything pretty soon. Um, I wasn't doing well, so she sent my aunt. Uh, she sent my aunt what she could. You know, she sent her 250 bucks, and said, "When he has his stuff packed, give it to him and tell him to come here." And so, I uh, got all my stuff packed in the back of my little pickup, and I started the journey back from Seattle. And uh, they followed me from Seattle to Kansas. I knew it all of them, (laughs) even the skinny ones that hide behind the sticks, uh, they were everywhere. And so I decided to take a side uh, little scenic route through the mountains of southern Oregon. And uh, I don't know if you guys know anything about geography. I know I didn't until I got sober, but uh, it took me 22 days to get from Tacoma, Washington, to Norton, Kansas. Uh, It's an 1,800-mile trip. It don't take 22 days. Um, I hung out in the mountains of Southern Oregon for a while and, and did everything I could possibly do to stay high and stay drunk and and do everything I could possibly do to try to kill myself. And I really didn't intend to do that. It was just that's where I was at. That's I mean, that's the point of my life I was at. Um, I wish I could say that was my bottom, but it wasn't. I mean, I, I had to go further down. Um, I ended up getting back to Norton, Kansas, and... and uh, uh, Started going to meetings, started doing this. I'd get two months sober, I'd get three months sober, I'd relapse, and then I'd go back, and um, I'd do that again. I finally scored a job in Wichita, and I went down to Wichita, and I was there for six months, and I mean, I just completely decimated every opportunity I had there. And and I remember I stayed in this apartment down by the river in Riverside Park, and if anybody knows about Wichita, Riverside's down in Old Town in Wichita, and and I had this apartment, it was ground level, and so they were always watching me there, too. (laughs) Those guys wouldn't leave me alone. Uh, but I was right by the river, and I'd walk out. And I remember the, the last three weeks I was there, I, had, I decided I just didn't need to work anymore. Um, I'd gotten an eviction notice. I um, was out by the river, and I was drinking a beer and smoking a joint, and I was just tired of my life. And I just thought, man, God, just give me a life, man. That's all I want is a life. So what happened next is I ended up in treatment in Augusta, Kansas, and I'd like to tell you that it was as good as the other two treatments that I went through, where you get to hug bears and have toilet seats and hug each other and love each other and be all nice, talk about your feelings, but it wasn't like that at all. It was a hospital room. My roommate had a frickin' alarm clock that was the size of a VW bug, and he had a hard time waking up. And you want to talk about an early sobriety resentment? I hated that dude. (laughs) That alarm clock was annoying. Um... Nothing like waking up, you know, detoxing with your fingers on the ceiling going like a cat and there's alarm clock going off. But I went through that treatment. I was there for three weeks and, and you know, I, I had nothing. I mean, I had absolutely nothing. I had a half a trash bag of clothes, uh, a pair of tennis shoes I pulled out of a dumpster. Uh, my counselor at the time loaned me $5 for gas to get from Wichita to Lawrence. And I had nothing. I had literally nothing. Uh, not only monetarily, but spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, it was gone. I didn't really intend on staying in AA when I got here. I just wanted to get on to the next bigger, better deal because I tried AA. I tried all this stuff—going to meetings, singing "Kumbaya," and you know, doing these conferences—and I just, I just didn't get it. It didn't work for me. Uh, so I got to Lawrence, and I ended up moving to an Oxford house, and, and uh, I spent a year in an Oxford house. But, you know, the first thing I was told, uh, I called my brother from treatment, and I told him I was in treatment, and he said, so what do you want? I mean, that's, I mean, again, I'm right back there with my family. What do you want? It was always about what I wanted to get me out of trouble. And uh, he said, well, you can't come here, but you can call this number here. You can get an interview at an Oxford house. You can call this guy here and ask him to be your sponsor, and you can make this your home group. And if you do that, you can come here. Click. And so... God called this guy I'd met him before I didn't like him at all um so I called this guy and we talked for a little bit and, and uh, I was asking him questions and you know and I really love how we do sponsorship because we're kind of straight up you know we don't let our, these newcomers beat around the bush too much we just get right to the point you know and I'm like eh, I'm telling him all this stuff I need to do and he's like are you asking me to sponsor you you like that question that's a that's a bad question for a newcomer who's got a big ego Um, well, yeah, I guess so. You know, and, you know, we get that, that famous other question. Are you willing to go to any length to stay sober? And that's a hard one to ponder because I really don't know what lengths I'm willing to go to because I really didn't want to stay here. And and I said, well, (laughs) to the best of my willingness. (laughs) (laughs) What did you say? (laughs) For the first time in my life, I had a voice louder in my head. He didn't yell at me but it sure sounded like it. And uh, that's where my recovery began, right there. That interaction was what saved my life. And I'll be forever grateful to that man. He, be- he gave me a message of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'd never had before. You know, he didn't let me flounder. That's what we do here. We don't let each other flounder in Alcoholics Anonymous. We grab each other by the hands and we go through the steps. And that's what he did for me. Um, and then we call each other out, sometimes in public. And that's not a fun thing. I was about six months sober. And uh, I'd finally gotten a good job. You know, I was on contract working for a very large company. And, and so I was feeling pretty good about myself. But I had a few things called character defects that were cropping up quite evidently. And uh, people were noticing. And so he gets up to the podium and he says, Darren's doing this, Darren's doing that. He's doing this, and he's not doing that. Nevertheless, he has six months sober. That's exactly how I felt. I mean, the longer he talked, the lower I sank in my seat. And I'm thinking, really? So I called him out in the parking lot after. I said, do we have a problem? And he turned around and walked away. And he caught my attention and uh, let me know right there had some behavior issues. And uh, it wasn't shortly long after that we were in a meeting in, in Kansas City, and I pulled him aside after the meeting and started taking everybody's inventory in the meeting and how they were talking about me and they were collaborating before the meeting to have the meeting about me and my problems and my character defects and I really didn't appreciate it. <laughs> Forty five minutes he listened to this garbage, and he stopped. He's smoking his cigarette. He probably smoked four or five cigarettes having to listen to. He probably wanted to punch me in the mouth. I'm sure. Um, he put his cigarette out and he said Darren, I want you to drive back to Lawrence and I want you to go in the bathroom of your little Oxford house that you're staying at and I want you to shut the door and I want want you to look at yourself in the mirror and say how pathetic you are that's pretty offensive (laughs) but I did it I went home, I shut the door I said you're pathetic and I got to laugh at myself because I was. I mean, I was pathetic. I'm living in an Oxford house. Nothing wrong with it. I think that's a great place for newcomers to go and stay and get sober. But my God, look at the condition of my life, and I'm acting like this? Really? Um, and I really truly believe that's another point. It's another spiritual experience, a burning bush, if you will, of, of a recognition of, of who I had become and, and who I didn't need to be anymore. I'd like to say that I'm a, you know, an airline pilot or a famous athlete or a famous singer or a lawyer or anything like that, but I'm none of those things. As you've just seen through the, the message I've just, or the, the me- so up to, up to this point, I'm just a gutter-licking, drunk alcoholic, and everything I do is alcoholically. What happened to me was my sponsor always told me, he said, I want you to show up meetings 15 minutes early, and I want you to stay at least 15 minutes afterwards. That has helped me out in every aspect of my life. Um, I came here, my first job is I got to mow lawns. My next job, I was a contract project manager. My next job, I got to be a civil uh, uh, engineering technician. My next job, I got to be an architectural designer. My next job, I got to be uh, a project manager for a very large company. My next job was I was a national sales manager, product manager for a company. And I mean, it's all of the things that I've learned here in Alcoholics Anonymous have taught me to show up early, stay late, Give everything you've got while you're there. Go ask other people about your lives. And that is, the, that is a recipe for success in anything we do in our lives. Now, the key is, is who do I really owe that success to? It's God, man. Any success that I'm having. When I, when I read that stuff in the big book and it says any success I'm having is more God's success than mine, man, I've got to take that to heart because I didn't come here with those ideals. I came here with ideas about getting over on you to get for me what I wanted, no matter what expense. And all that changed because this guy said, are you willing to go to anything like this day sober? Um, I've met my wife in Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, she sold me $55 of raffle tickets at a conference. <laughs> I got her phone number, drove back to Lawrence, dropped the girl that was with me off. She was just a friend. Just a friend. And uh, I called that girl, and she said, yeah, come on over. She was having a party at her house, and they were talking about the thing, you know, the 11 o'clock booty calls. And my, her phone rang when I called. I drive over there. She says no. I went home with my tail between my legs, and by God, I said, I want everything that woman's got. <laughs> So we, we dated for a few years. We did. We, we, we've had a tremendous life. You know, I asked her to marry me a couple of years after we met. And, uh, you know, my, my sponsor at the time, he, he uh, was very adamant about old school proposals and doing things the right way and practicing chivalry in your life. And, and uh, he preached a lot about that to me, and, and I took that to heart. And he said, you have to go ask your dad for permission before you can ask her to marry you. Now, her dad is a very intimidating man. He was a very, very intimidating man. Very successful man. Very prominent in the community. and, and uh, But he was the kind of guy that walked into the room. And when he walked in, the lights just, wow. Look at that guy. Very charismatic. And the first thing he always wanted to do was reach out and see how you were doing. He didn't want to ever talk about himself. And, and so we were putting a front door on the house one day and on her house one day. And and, uh, and uh, I looked up at him. I says, you know, me and your daughter have been dating for a while. And, um. He says, yeah. And I said, I'd like to ask your permission for her hand in marriage. And he said it would be an honor. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. The dad's always said, get away from that guy. And he said it would be an honor. Um, So I asked her to marry me. and She said yes. And I did it in front of 60 or 70 of our AA friends. And my daughter was there. Um... I got to make my amends to my daughter when I was about a year sober. And um, when I did my inventory, uh, I had to admit to my sponsor that there was a lot of things in that relationship that I had really done wrong. Um, when I was out there doing my deals, and you know the only form of communication I had was a pager. And I'd get pages, and I'd recognize the number, but I couldn't remember who it was. And uh, she'd answer the phone. She'd say, hey, Daddy, I haven't seen you in a while can you come and spend the weekend with me? I didn't have a place to live, so I really couldn't take her to my house. I'd say, sure, honey, I'll come pick you up on Friday and we'll go spend the weekend together. And i forget. This didn't happen just once. This happened many, many times. i just forget. The thought when I was doing my fifth step with my sponsor was her sitting there on Friday night with her bag packed. And she's asking herself this, what did I do wrong? The thought of that still haunts me sometimes. Um, But in the big book, when this says we're still in the age of miracles, when I made my amends to that little girl, she became my daughter again. Prior to that, she was just an acquaintance. Um, I got to see her graduate from high school. Um, I went on vacation with her mom and her husband and their son and my wife and my son. And I had a blast. Um, I watched her graduate from college. I was there. She's come and visit me numerous times. Her husband asked my permission for marriage. And I got to walk her down the aisle. And I got the last dance. Um, those aren't supposed to happen to us. Those things aren't supposed to happen for us. My wife and I have two wonderful sons, Cooper and Brady. We have a lawyer fund and we have a college fund. One will use one and one will use the other. We'll see how this evolves. Jury's still out. Uh, But... uh, my 13-year-old was born September 11, 2001. Yeah, some people say that. Others go, that's pretty incredible. Because it is. It's very incredible. He bears my father-in-law's first name. Uh, his middle name is my father-in-law's first name. Um, Cooper, May 8th of nine years ago, whatever that is, 2004, six. yeah. You know, hey. CRS man Uh, but he's a handful and he's an athlete and he's charismatic and he's fun and he's ornery Um, if I were to look right now I'd say he'd use a lawyer phone but you just never know Uh, what I can tell you is that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous not really planning on staying here you guys grabbed a hold of me you picked me up and you gave me a new life the way you gave me a new life is you brought me in you stuck me in the middle of this deal and you didn't let me out and as a result of that, everything in my life revolves around Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous does not revolve around my life. You know, I'm grateful for that, you know. Um, I'm blessed way beyond merit. If you're new here, how many people here are under a year sober? Is there anybody? Man, stay here. Get in the middle. Um, there's an old analogy, if you will, of a merry-go-round where... You get in the middle, you know, you're, when you're a kid, you get on that merry-go-round, and you fly around on the outside, and you fall off in the sand, and it's like, wow, what a rush, that's fun, let's do it again, you know? Um, but the closer you get to the middle of that merry-go-round, it kind of tends to go a little slower, and you're less likely to fall off. And when I look at my life in Alcoholics Anonymous like that, man, I want to be in the middle of that merry-go-round. I have found a brand-new life here in Alcoholics Anonymous because of, of this group, because of my group, and groups like this. And I really truly hope that you do too. Thank you for my sobriety and without a doubt. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.